Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. This is the Word of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are indeed a firm foundation for us. People come and go. Years come and go. But you and your word stand forever. And we're so grateful to have that as our foundation. And we, as we open your word this morning, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be transformed mightily for the glory of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, good morning, Orchard Bible Church. Welcome to 2023. Uh, your pastors are so thankful for you and your growth, your spiritual growth in the Lord that we've seen over the last year. And uh, we look forward to ministering with you and to you in this new year. It is a new year, of course, a new season, a turning of the page to a fresh start. And every time we flip the calendar like we just did, we're reminded that our God is a God of seasons. He is a God of times and ages as he works out his plan for our world. A few weeks ago, as Nate mentioned, we began a new series in the Gospel of Matthew, a series on kingdom life that will take us practically through this whole year, Lord willing. Uh, and it wasn't accidental, of course, that uh, we planned the beginning of Matthew at Christmas time, uh, with the account of Jesus' birth and God entering our world through his Son. And today we see more detail on this significance. In, in the history of redemption, a turning of the page in God's calendar with the promised age coming in the person of Jesus. John the Baptist says it's this way, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So today I encourage you to follow along in your sermon outline in your bulletin. We're going to consider two main themes related to this coming kingdom that John pronounces. The first is John's role in preparing sinners for the ministry of Jesus. And then the second is John's role in preparing Jesus for his ministry to sinners. So here at the beginning of chapter 3, Matthew has jumped ahead about 25 years in the life of Jesus, which just goes to show it's not Matthew's purpose to write a biography of Jesus. His goal is first to show us the origin of Jesus, both human and divine, which we saw in the first two chapters, and now to show us the preparation for his ministry, which we'll consider this week and next. The remainder of Matthew will go into detail about this ministry itself, which will consist of both Jesus' teaching, uh, right away we'll see in the Sermon on the Mountain, and uh, specific accounts of his life as we go through, leading up to, of course, the crowning achievement in his ministry, his death and resurrection. So immediately in chapter 3, we're introduced to this man named John and his role, number one, of preparing sinners for the ministry of Jesus. Let's read together in 
verse 1 of chapter 3 of Matthew through verse 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So first, who is this messenger? It is John the baptizer. Okay, in all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John the Baptist launches Jesus' ministry. He, uh, so this is a really important role. We, we know uh, from Luke that John was born to Elizabeth and Zechariah and was a cousin of Jesus. And now as an adult, he's preaching repentance in the wilderness of Judea. Repentance commanding people to turn back to God, just like the prophets of the Old Testament did. Now, it had been 400 years, roughly, since the last prophet on the scene. So just the fact that he was the first prophet after centuries of silence was an attention-getter in itself. And John is identified here as the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. And Matthew tells us, this is right out of the prophet Isaiah. Okay, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah describe in various ways God as king who is coming. Okay, and then in chapter 40, Isaiah alludes to this messenger, a voice crying in the wilderness, announcing that God is king, the Lord is coming. So John is the promised forerunner to this king, this Messiah who was to come. And he clears the path, as it were, for the Messiah's arrival. Now, this forerunner is also spoken of in the book of Malachi, the last prophet in our Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then at the very end of Malachi, we read this. This is the last verses in our Old Testament. Behold, I will send to you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this forerunner to the Messiah is identified in Malachi as Elijah the prophet. You're not literally Elijah, like he was going to be reincarnated or something, but a prophet that fits Elijah. So when the Jews see this man, John, dressed in camel hair garment, with a leather belt, eating locusts and honey, they were meant to notice, hey, this is the Elijah that was to come. John is the voice. He's fulfilling the prophecy here as the forerunner, preparing the way for the Messiah's arrival. Now, these prophecies say that this messenger would prepare the way for the Lord's arrival. So this description of John says as much about Jesus as it does about John's role. The Lord's arrival is Jesus. Okay, God the King has come himself as Messiah in the person of Jesus, reflecting what Matthew's already told us in chapter 1, that Jesus truly is Emmanuel, God 
with us. So John is the messenger. What's his message? Let her be. Repent and be baptized. Repent is a word you don't hear much outside of uh, religious circles. And here is the case where if you know a little Greek, it, it actually might hurt you versus help you and be counterproductive because the Greek word translated repent can be used in Greek culture to simply mean changing your mind. Okay, but that's not what the word meant to the Jews. Throughout the Old Testament, repentance meant much more than merely changing your mind, much more than merely an intellectual exercise. It involved the entire person. It was a lifestyle change involved, involving changing your mind, yes, but also your actions in every area of your life, turning around, turning from sin to God. And we see this repeated call from the prophets throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Return to me. They repent. Turner summarizes the aspects of repentance this way. You recognize your need. You have sorrow for your sin. You decide to turn from sin to God. And you obey with your lifestyle. Okay, that's repentance. And this message isn't just an Old Testament one. We see this going forward in the New Testament as well. When Jesus sends out his disciples uh, to proclaim the kingdom, the first part of the message was repent. Every time the gospel is preached in the book of Acts, included is repent. Remember our series on the, the letters to the outposts, the seven churches in Revelation. Five of these churches needed to address some things, so they included in their letter, repent. Repentance has to do with dealing with your sin. And it's interesting here that John isn't by the temple when he's announcing this. He's out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. He's not at the temple where the sacrifices were made to atone for sin. He's far away from the temple. This is an indicator of something we'll see developed, especially later in Matthew. Things are not well with the Jewish system. Okay, the temple economy, God's prescribed way of dealing with sin had become so corrupted because the leadership was corrupted. So those who were supposed to be administering the means of grace, as it were, had perverted the entire system into something unrecognizable as God's covenant. Now something greater than the temple is here. Okay, ultimately, the forgiveness of sins in the new covenant would not happen in the temple, but in Jesus Christ through his cross and resurrection. Now, associated with John's message of repentance is this act of baptism in the Jordan. Those who were repenting, he's immersing or dunking in the river. Okay, and contrary to what you might think, baptism was not a new thing per se. Okay, when Gentiles converted to Judaism, they would go through a cleansing rite, a ceremonial washing called a proselyte baptism. So that kind of thing was not new. This baptism would, would symbolize turning from your Gentile ways and embracing the covenant as an outsider. What is new here and what was different about John is that he's calling Jews to baptism. He's telling his fellow Jews that the Messiah is coming and you're not ready. This was a shocking message to some of the Jews. 
Your relationship with your God is not good. You need a new relationship with him. Repent. So people are heeding John's message. They're coming in repentance and then demonstrating their repentance by getting baptized. But John doesn't just baptize whoever wants to be. Some people come and John denies them baptism. Let's, read, let's start reading in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, for the first time in Matthew, we're introduced to two groups of Jewish leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, or separated ones, were so named because they studied the law very carefully to practice it all. They helped guard against breaking laws by putting additional barriers beyond the law around certain activities referred to sometimes as the tradition of the elders. Now, most people got so exhausted with the minutia of these details that they just gave up trying. So that left the Pharisees as truly separated, a cut above the rest of the people. But as we'll see throughout the gospel, with their focus on these traditions and additional barriers and minutiae, they lost sight of the heart of things, the the weightier matters. They, They sort of lost the plot of what the law was for as it related to their relationship with God. So that's the Pharisees. The Sadducees, we don't really know that much about. We know a little more from Acts, but they were were generally wealthy, uh, not relatable, really, to most people. National leadership, high priesthood, but we don't know as much about them. On the surface, it seems remarkable that any in these two groups would seek baptism. But John can sniff out their quote-unquote repentance and that it's only skin deep and it's not sincere. And his rejection is very strong. He calls them vipers, okay? They're sons of the serpent. As Satan spread poisonous lies in the Garden of Eden, so they are spreading poison. John's question to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, is sarcastic. Its meaning gets lost a little in English, but... He's basically saying, who told you you could be baptized because you show no signs of repentance? Since you haven't repented, why are you coming for baptism? This baptism isn't for you. You're not worthy of this baptism because you're in your sin and you haven't repented. And don't think your heritage matters or your family lineage will help you, he says. God can make sons of Abraham out of the rocks, and that's no trouble for him. And incidentally, I'll just add, that's what God does, really, as we read Galatians 3. He makes sons of Abraham out of the Gentiles. Then in verse 10, he describes an image of the coming judgment on unbelieving Israel. It says, the axe is at the root of the tree. This is an interesting image, isn't it? Normally, you think of an axe being taken to the base of the tree. But this axe hits at the root 
of the tree. As if to say there's no source of nourishment remaining at all. There's no hope for that tree. It's not like the image of the stump in Isaiah 11, where you have a stump that seems dead, but then there's a sprout coming out of the stump because the roots remain. Not so here. There's no chance of life here. It's not like God's pruning like we see in John 15 with the vine and the branches. The axe at the root means total destruction. While while there is a Jewish remnant that will always remain as God's people through Messiah, this entire Jewish system that exists there with the leadership represented here has become so corrupted to the root, there's no life possible left in that system again. Only judgment to come. So let me just summarize John's message to these Jewish leaders. You can't be baptized because you have not repented, you're still in your sin. You need a completely different lifestyle. Just because you're the offspring of Abraham, you will not escape God's wrath. Furthermore, you're actually offspring of Satan, spreading poisonous lies. The less influence you have on these people, the better. You vipers. This entire system of religion that you represent has become so corrupted, there's no life possible from it. John clearly had not read the book about how to win friends and influence people. What's required of all people, regardless of your heritage or family tree, he makes clear in verse 8, to bear fruit keeping with repentance. Leon Morris notes it's important that he says bear fruit, singular, because it's not a collection of external works that's required but a singular transformed life, a life that's been changed by repentance, a radical reorientation of your entire life around the kingdom, which is the motive for John's message, readiness for the kingdom of heaven. The reason John gives for this message of repentance is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does that mean? This is a phrase that is pregnant with meaning, okay? Uh, The similar phrase, kingdom of God, in Mark and Luke, only occurs a few times in Matthew. Matthew's preference is the kingdom of heaven, uh, and, and while there's possibly more to it than this, it's probably best to understand Matthew just trying to avoid the name of God for his Jewish audience. So kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, has a number of threads that are pulled together. Okay, first of all, Most fundamentally, it means God is king or God reigns, okay? Now, there's a sense in which, of course, God's always reigning. But as Leon Morris says, the kingdom is something that happens, okay? It's not something that exists, okay? Throughout the Old Testament, there was was an escalating expectation of this kingdom to happen. There would be a visitation from God. He would regather Israel as his unified people, He would establish justice. He would crush the opposition. He would renew creation, renew the universe. Also important to this was God's covenant to David, which we studied last fall in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David's offspring, also called in that passage the Son of God, Okay, he would reign as king in an everlasting kingdom. Mixed in with these expectations was the day of the Lord you read about in certain prophets, 
which is the day of salvation for God's people, but the day of terrible judgment for everyone else. So the Jews had these expectations, and you can understand why the focus would be on the Roman occupation, because we see throughout the gospel, that's what their focus is. And it's very easy to misunderstand or misnuance the effect of the kingdom. We, We have the same misunderstandings about the kingdom today, frankly. It's very easy to wrongly focus on a political kingdom. We need to bring in the kingdom. Overthrow the cultural opposition to our faith. Get the right people in places of political leadership. Well, the Jews had the same idea. If the kingdom means God establishes justice, crushes the opposition, where is it? At least part of the confusion is this little phrase, at hand. The kingdom is at hand. This word can mean the kingdom is near, has come, is coming, imminent, or started already. Scholars agree this is deliberately ambiguous because this kingdom happening is a series of events. You can't pin it down to one moment. So John uses a word that means both. And that's why we still talk about the kingdom today as already but not yet. John is saying there's a sense in which the kingdom is still is here and another sense which the kingdom is still future. And even today, after the cross and resurrection, there's a greater sense that the kingdom has been inaugurated or is already. But there's also a really important and significant sense that the kingdom is not yet consummated and it has not yet come. So in John's day, The main sense the kingdom had arrived was that the king had arrived. The the kingdom of heaven is closely associated with the person of Jesus. God will begin to exercise his royal authority now in a new way through his son's ministry. So that reign begins to become visible on earth as it is in heaven. And we see throughout Matthew, Jesus has invaded our world of sin by his teaching, his healing, restraining Satan, reversing the curse, culminating, of course, in his victorious atonement on the cross. And we embrace the kingdom. We embrace the king's rule and enter the kingdom by repenting and believing. Don Carson points out that back in chapter 1, Matthew tells us that Jesus came to provide salvation from sin. Remember, that's his name. Well, here in the first announcement of the kingdom of heaven, we see that the kingdom is associated with repentance and confession of sin. And then finally, John's message message relates to the Messiah, the greater baptizer to come. Let's start reading in verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, carrying someone's sandals was a job for a slave. Get the lowest rung on the social ladder. John says he's not even worthy to be Jesus' slave. Okay? In other words, the disparity of greatness between himself and Jesus is so extreme 
There's no category for how he would relate to Jesus in a societal structure. Not even worthy to be a slave. And one of the many ways Jesus is greater is that his baptism is greater. John is baptizing with water, connected with repentance for sin, from sin. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, now baptism means immersion. So instead of immersing you into water, John's saying, Jesus will immerse you into the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 12 is very clear that the fire is judgment. So we'll come back to that in a minute. But first, the Holy Spirit. A fundamental promise of the new covenant in the Hebrew scriptures. Back in Ezekiel 36, along with the forgiveness of sins, Jesus would, it was promised that, that the Messiah, Jesus, would bring the gift of the Holy Spirit okay, so that his people would be empowered to obey him in a new way because the law will be written on their hearts. When Jesus baptizes you spiritually, you're indwelled or immersed in the Holy Spirit. And your repentance flows from this new life. You're born again. Okay, but Jesus also immerses or baptizes people with fire. This speaks of the judgment to come in verse 12. The threshing floor and winnowing forks. We don't use those uh, exactly like that today, so let me just explain that. Before threshing machines and combines you see in the field, winnowing forks were used to separate the wheat from the chaff. So you would, you would go into the grain floor and, and, and throw up the, uh, the wheat and the chaff together, and the wind would blow away the lighter chaff, and the heavier grain would fall down. So it was, it was, an, it was an operation of separating the good from the bad. Jesus uh, illustrates this in a different way later with the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Okay, similar idea. They grow together, but then at the harvest, final judgment, the wheat, it's separated from the weeds. Okay, at the final judgment, the, the believers are separated from unbelievers. So, and, and note that this image, note this image of judgment, an unquenchable fire. So there's no expiration date on the judgment. It will be forever. So this matter of being ready for the kingdom of heaven is of utmost importance. And your repentance and reorienting your life around this Messiah is critical. So that's John's role in preparing sinners for the ministry of Jesus. Now let's consider, number two in your outline, his role of preparing Jesus for his ministry to sinners. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that is John, consented. So first, the divine reason for Jesus' baptism. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And John understandably resists. Okay, I mean, Jesus is not a sinner that needs to repent. So this baptism is not for him. Listen to Don Carson as eloquent as ever. Earlier, John had difficulty baptizing the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were not worthy of his baptism. Now he has trouble baptizing Jesus because his baptism is not worthy of Jesus. So John says, no, 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 no. Why don't you baptize me? I mean, that makes sense, right? 
But Jesus answers him in verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is a loaded statement, but I'll do my best to unpack. Okay? First, as David Garland says, the now is significant. Let it be so now. In other words, your objection, John, is valid in principle. Okay? I'm not a sinner. And your baptism is for repentance of sin. So you are right to object on that basis. But there's something unique about this moment now in salvation history. This historical moment in God's plan for redemption and my role in that makes you baptizing me fitting for us to do now. So what is this moment now? Well, it has to do, Jesus says, with fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus' work of identification and sal- I'm sorry, Jesus' work of salvation, we ultimately see on the cross, is one of identification with and substitution for his people. He both identifies with his people, Israel, and becomes their substitute. Now follow me here. This is some cool Bible stuff, but you, got, you, got, you can't check out. Okay, Hang with me here. When Matthew alludes to fulfillment, which he frequently does, doesn't he? This is fulfilled, thus fulfilled. We're not meant to just find that verse or verses in the Old Testament. We're meant to consider the whole context from where those verses come. So for instance, Matthew told us earlier in our passage that John fulfills this messenger role in Isaiah 40. Okay, the voice in the wilderness. Announcing the coming of the king in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Right after that in Isaiah is another prominent figure called the servant of the Lord. In some places like Isaiah 53, we see this figure as a suffering servant, one who bears the griefs of Israel, carries her sorrows, pierced for her transgressions, crushed for her iniquities. Okay, we, we cite this passage many times in our Lord's Supper, don't we? Rightfully so, because of its obvious allusion to Jesus. Now, when I was in college, I took a a world religions class, and we had a Jewish rabbi come and speak to us. And I remember someone asking him about Isaiah 53. Who who is this suffering servant from the Jewish perspective? I mean, we Christians obviously think that's Jesus. And I remember his response was that he thought that the servant of the Lord was Israel. And I remember leaving class thinking, how could he possibly think that? But what I didn't realize then is that uh, I basically was only familiar at that point with the servant in Isaiah 53 because that's what Christians understandably focus on. But there are about 16 chapters in Isaiah that talk about the servant of the Lord. And throughout most of those chapters, the servant is clearly identified as Israel. So in that sense, the rabbi was right. But as these chapters in Isaiah progress, It seems that Israel fails to fulfill her role as the servant because of her spiritual blindness. And so Isaiah seems to transition to an individual servant which God will use to fulfill the role Israel failed to do. So you have the servant of the Lord figure in in Isaiah identified as Israel in many cases. But then in other cases, there's a distinction between Israel and the servant like Isaiah 53, where the servant is ministering to Israel. So here we have Jesus, 
a perfect fulfillment of the servant of the Lord because, this is the genius of Matthew, what he does throughout his gospel, by showing Jesus as both the servant distinct from Israel, ministering to her, but also Jesus as the true Israel, the faithful one within Israel, the one faithful to perform the, what Israel did not. Let me just give you some examples of how Matthew does this. Showing Jesus as the true Israel. Nate's passage last week, Christmas morning. Like Pharaoh tried to wipe out Israel by killing all the baby boys during the time of Moses, so Herod tried to wipe out the true Israel by slaughtering the boys of Bethlehem. Same chapter. Like Israel was brought out of Egypt in the Exodus, Okay, Matthew quotes the prophet referring to that. Out of Egypt I have called my son, Israel. So the true Israel was taken by Joseph and Mary through and out of Egypt to Nazareth. Now our passage today. Like Israel was taken through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness, here the true Israel is taken through the waters of baptism into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days, as we'll see next week, a testing which Israel failed in her 40 years in the wilderness. So to summarize what Jesus is saying to John, it is fitting now in salvation history for you to baptize me because I'm identifying as the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, both performing what Israel should do as the true Israel and also a substitute for Israel as I begin to take her place. So John consented and baptized him. As David Garland says, in his baptism, Jesus binds himself to the destiny of Israel. And his baptism is part of fulfilling all righteousness by carrying out his role in God's plan of identification with and substitution and salvation for his people. Turner says it this way, Jesus fulfills all righteousness by fulfilling biblical patterns and predictions about the Messiah. Jesus, as the suffering servant, proclaims and exemplifies the righteousness envisioned by the prophets. So what's happening now in this baptism is a key event in the unfolding plan of God through the substitution of Jesus for his people so that they might have a right relationship with God. That's the divine reason for Jesus' baptism. Now let's consider, letter B, the divine reaction to Jesus' baptism. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Times in scripture we read that the heavens were opened are times when something significant is happening. In this case, the dawning of the new age of Messiah that was promised throughout the Hebrew scriptures, that age has come. As Carson says, God himself breaks the silence and is now revealing himself again to human beings. Talk about a character reference. Jesus has two members of the Trinity vouching for him. This is the first time in the Bible where we see an explicit reference to the Trinity. One God and three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Spirit, it says, descended like a dove 
to rest on him. This imagery is likely drawing attention to a couple of things. The first is the spirit hovering over creation as the creator in Genesis 1. But more interesting, the dove who, which, which comes to Noah after the flood. Remember that dove ushered in the renewed creation after the flood. New life from what was dead. Here the Messiah is ushering in the new creation. One of the kingdom promises in Isaiah. It's starting. And the spirit rests on Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, the servant of the Lord, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, or in whom I am well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. This is what God, this is what the Father says about Jesus, but it's modified a little to combine these words about the servant with the words about the king, the son of God in 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2. You are my son, the coronated king. So, so much fulfillment here for the onlookers of this baptism to hear in these audible words, this testimony from heaven. This is the son of God. The promised king from David, the ruler of God's kingdom in Isaiah, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, both the true and better Israel, the suffering servant for Israel, the one who will bring forgiveness through sacrifice. This is your Messiah, my son, and I love him. And only later, after the cross, would they also come to hear in this statement from the Father out of heaven, God's words to Abraham about Isaac in Genesis 22. Take your son, whom you love. Well, so much to consider this morning in this rich passage, but I'll just focus on a couple of principles for us today. The first is this, be ready. Be ready. Bear fruit of repentance. John is very clear that God's, I'm sorry, John is very clear that God's judgment is coming. And there's no forgiveness without repentance. And every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This was not a popular teaching in John's day. And it's not a popular teaching today. Our culture is mystified that God would put anyone in hell, let alone for eternity. I mean, even for someone like Adolf Hitler, it's thought. After a billion years, I mean, enough is enough, right? As one commentator said, one reason for this confusion is that our culture grossly underestimates the power of sin. After a billion years, someone like Adolf Hitler will hate God more than he did the day he died because all restraining influence is gone. But I think it's important for us, though, to see that John's harshest words are not directed to groups who might be called evil in that culture or the worst of sinners, but his strongest warnings are to religious people. Those most closely associated with God in his work, those who taught and professed to live out God's word, they take the brunt of his strongest rebuke to bear fruit of repentance, to live a life changed, consistent with a turning from sin to God. I know we've all seen people at football stadiums, parking lots, and public squares with signs about God's judgment coming. 
And of course, there's a sense in which that's a fact. I mean, everyone needs to know that God's judgment is coming. But I wonder if John were here today with his sign about the judgment to come. It seems less likely from this passage that he'd be at the light rail station or mile-high stadium parking lot, but instead maybe coming into churches with his sign. It seems from our passage today that John's scathing rebuke would not be at someone carrying a rainbow flag or some Hollywood elite, but at professing Christians who aren't living like Christians. People who have claimed repentance, but are not bearing fruit. People who talk about the Bible as it relates to the wrong things other people are doing, but don't follow the hard teaching themselves and obey it in their hearts. The Pharisees came to participate in the outward sign of being ready for the kingdom. But John exposes they were not inwardly ready at all. They thought they were exempt from the judgment because of their heritage and their association with the things of God. Do we do that? Do we think that because we were raised in a Christian family, because we go to church or have a Bible app on our phone, or because we defend morality on social media, where we're citizens of a nation with some historical roots to Christianity, that we're somehow exempt from the judgment to come. Don't make the mistake of the Pharisees. We need to bear fruit consistent with repentance. We need to demonstrate that our lives have, in fact, been reoriented around the king and his kingdom and his word implanted in our hearts by the Spirit. And not just the outward moral commands, but bearing the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, love, and the rest. And just a word about repentance. It is a process. Uh, You cannot repent all at once because we don't even see all of our sin, and that is a mercy, believe me, from God to only show us so much at a time. If I was truly made aware of all of my sin at once, it would destroy me. So if we're truly regenerate, he will, with, with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, he will increasingly reveal to us in his word, through loved ones, through others, things we need to repent of. And we need to humbly heed that when it happens. That's why Martin Luther, when he launched the Reformation, the very first of his 95 theses was that the Christian life is a life of repentance. Doriani says it this way, I like this. It's a life of detecting and rejecting ingrained sin patterns. Detecting and rejecting ingrained sin patterns. Repentant people live differently. They bear fruit, and it's obvious that they've been changed. Start the new year with repentance. I mean, from sin you've been ignoring or hiding, be ready. Secondly, be redeemed. Experience God's love through his son. We noted that this is the first time in the scripture where we see the Trinity explicitly acting together. One God in essence and three in persons. And God as Trinity is an underappreciated doctrine today. Michael Reeves says one reason for this is that we tend to think of the Trinity like a math problem instead of the beauty that it is. Let me just try to capture in a small way 
why this is so beautiful and why it's so important. In our passage, the father says from heaven that he loves his son. Okay, and that is a love within God that has always existed in eternity past. In John 1, we're told that God is love. That couldn't be the case without the Trinity. God's love cannot exist without the Trinity, and here's why. If God was only one person, like the God of Islam, for instance, he could not be eternally loving because there's no one for him to love. His love would have to be dependent upon creation. But God cannot be dependent on anything in his attributes, or he's not God. The God we're given in this gospel is a triune God with a father who eternally loves his son. This God has always been loving. There's never been a time when God the Father did not love God the Son. And this is the God we get through repentance and faith in Jesus. We're brought into a loving relationship as sons and daughters of God, adopted into his family. Perhaps the highest blessing of the gospel, adoption. This could not be without the Trinity. There could not be this concept of the Father adopting us into his family Without the Trinity. If God was not a father, we could never be his children. But through his son, whom he always loved, we can be adopted into his family as sons and daughters of God. What a beautiful truth. And what a beautiful God. Do you know God this way? Do you know God as your father? Have you been brought into his family and adopted as his child? If not, you can be. Start the new year with a new birth. Be redeemed. He sent his son whom he loves to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the promises, to fix the brokenness in this world and the brokenness inside you, to be your substitute, to be the servant, to be the king, to be the savior. Please repent, turn from your sin and reorient your entire life in obedience around Jesus so that you can call God your father. For as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. Amen. Please stand as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful this morning for Jesus. We're so grateful that this kingdom has come, has been inaugurated in the person of your son, in his cross, and his resurrection. What a beautiful substitution. What a beautiful story of identification with your people and saving them. Lord, if there are those here today that are not part of that family, may they reach out to talk to one of us. May they not let that thought rest. May they turn to you in faith and repentance and reorient their life around the king and this wonderful kingdom. For the rest of us, Lord, May we not ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning, that we deal with sin, that we repent of sin, that we confess it to you, and that we renew our obedience to you by the power of your Spirit this new year. You're such a merciful Savior. Your mercy never ends, and we're so grateful. Amen.